Hello, my name is Peter Dunn, and I'm here today with Professor Sue Bridgewater, who is Associate Professor at Warwick Business School and the author of a new book out this week on football brands, published by Palgrave Macmillan and available from all the usual outlets. The start of your book, you say that actually premiership teams are a bit like any other company, that the value of the brand is very important, that if you look at an ordinary company, it's probably worth twice as much as its balance sheet because of its brand. If you look at some of our better-known companies, they can be worth four times as much as their balance sheet simply because of their brand. Does this imply in football? Yes, it does. I mean, when you say a strong brand will, will get you about four times the, the balance sheet, what we mean is if that company was sold and because of the value of its brands, it would be worth more than just what's on its balance sheet. And uh, we have evidence that, for example, when Nestle bought Roundtree, it was six times the balance sheet that they paid because it had Smarties and, and KitKat and various other brands that were strong. Um, when Manchester United was bought by the Glazer family, it was about four times the value of its balance sheet that they paid for it. So the same thing does seem to apply, that because these clubs have very recognisable names and they have fans and you know these fans could be spread around the world and have a strong attachment to, to the club and to the brand, uh, it works in much the same way, that there is a value in the brand. As you mentioned the Manchester United sale, hundreds of millions of pounds now, someone like me that's an awful lot of money, but it doesn't seem to be an awful lot of money for something which is this massive global brand, a few hundred million pounds for one of our best clubs. Well it's interesting isn't it because we talk about them, I, I sometimes do interviews and people say Manchester United, big global brand like Coca-Cola and you have to point out to them that it's a big global brand but it's not at all like Coca-Cola because that's a multinational em enterprise with lots of divisions, large market capitalisation worth billions of dollars and these are relatively small organisations, they're the equivalent of small or medium-sized enterprises. Manchester United has about 300 employees but it has a brand that is recognised and has fans globally. So for the size of the corporation, these are massive brands. So it's, it's a curious dichotomy, and they're brands that aren't listed on the stock market, or at least aren't listed anymore in many cases. Yeah, we went through a phase in the early 1990s where a number of them were listed, uh, but investors actually came to the conclusion that they didn't get very good returns in buying football. I think they were speculating on the fact that the share price would go up, but of course um, football clubs, football brands are linked in with teams and their fortunes vary. And I think after a couple of instances where... Um, somebody's fortunes might decline because they failed to qualify for Europe or, um, for example, you can imagine a club getting relegated or, or something like that, then um, I think confidence was, was taken away from them as, as good institutional investments. And the return, in fact, the share prices of a number of clubs went down. And the other thing was, obviously, that when you're listed on the stock market, they had unintentional consequences because the clubs uh, saw this as a good way of, of raising capital through rights issues by selling shares to their fans. Great. Somebody like Manchester United, who was sitting there debt-free, listed on the stock market, then, of course, obviously are open to the possibility of hostile takeover. Why are the people coming and buying up their shares? So that there has been a trend more recently where once someone has ownership of the club, they buy back the proportion of shares that they would need to delist the club from the market so that, that then somebody else can't come along and, and take over the club without them wishing. They only put it up for sale, but they can't actually have face a hostile takeover. 
I guess uh, while they then don't have to face the ups and downs of the stock market, they face the much more intense ups and downs of their own various leagues. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, which league you're in is, is the most significant thing in terms of your financial fortunes because the amount of money in the UK that comes with the Premier League or in other European countries and in other countries around the world that comes in being the top division is very significant and it varies. So, for example... The Premier League in England is, is one of the biggest leagues in the world. It has very strong broadcasting rights. It's The, the revenue of the Premier League is about a billion pounds at the moment, but £750 million comes from um, domestic, um, from broadcasting rights domestically. So only a quarter is coming from the international market. It therefore has a massive potential to expand. It's get it doing deals around the world. It's in 170 countries. It can go much further. And the people watching those performances in the leagues are the fans who equate, if any other brand, with a customer. But does the equation work as closely with, with football brands, fans to customers? Because I sort of imagine fans will stick with their teams mostly through thick and thin and they'll, they'll never change to another brand or not quite so easily. Is that the case? I think it works differently. I mean, I would say in one way, these are the most involved types of customers you could possibly get. I mean, we talk about high involvement brands like chocolate or <laughs> beer or cars, where people feel very strongly about the brand that they have or the type of car, and they show extreme loyalty. Uh, but this is very extreme loyalty. It's very emotional loyalty. What then happens, I think you're quite right, in that they don't um, switch to another team because of poor performance. I mean, you know, most fans, if you say to them, um, your team isn't doing well. Uh, I'm a Sunderland supporter. Our team got relegated with a record low number of points one season, but I didn't go and support Newcastle because it's just unimaginable mm. to most football fans you'd support the rival. But what fans do as customers is show different kinds of behaviour. Then they almost distance themselves from the brand. It's too painful. So rather than switching, they would actually steer away from reading news, watching television, actually socialising with people even, um, because they don't want to talk about their club. So they, they are still customers who have a response and a loyalty to their brand and they show types of behaviours in terms of purchase and all of those things that marketers would be interested in. Um, but they do it in somewhat different ways to other brands. So they reduce their own social engagement, Dave. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you don't want to go out and talk about um, the result if it's a poor result because of the emotional mm -hmm. attachment and people just sort of... There's evidence that suggests that you actually do something that they call Berg, bask in reflected glory when you win, and cough, cut off rejected failure when you lose, uh, which basically says when, when the team does well, you go, we were the 12th man, you know, it's down mm. to us, and we, we supported them. Um, and, and when they do badly, um, you know, it's the board, the manager, the referee's fault, the players weren't putting in a 100% and so on, and it's nothing to do with the... The fans. Also, I was, I was reading some research on this by a chap called Alan Tapp, and he, he basically said, you know, very few customers you would actually go and do their weekly shop and, and run up the aisles of their, their local supermarket going, I'm an Asda fan, I'm an Asda fan. <laughs> but you would actually um, go around sort of wearing team colours and showing your support of something like a football brand. Uh, you mentioned your own experience at uh, Sunderland, and you mentioned in the book that a lot of fandom or customer loyalty is passed down in families, unlike any other brand. Is, is that a big thing? Yeah, it's the single biggest reason for support is that there is some kind of family connection. It's not the only reason, because people also support uh, because they happen to be in a location, so it's a regional thing, 
or uh, because of a star player or a particularly memorable match that happens just at the stage where they're deciding who to support. But um, following in a tradition of, of family, particularly father, but also mother, grandparents, brothers, uncles, uh, aunts, passing it down through generations applies not just if you actually physically go to matches but also for those fans who are in other locations. And does that help explain why there's been a limited brand penetration, if you put it that way, into some ethnic minority groups? In particular, it's been hard to get um, uh, Asian people interested in football and supporting football or participating in football to, to that extent. Is that, is that true or is that because you need family to pass it down to begin with and it's harder to build, if you see what I mean? There could be a family element. I think partially what happens in some communities is that there's um, less of a tradition of support, not necessarily just a family, but maybe there's a greater interest amongst their community, friends, family in another sport like cricket. Um, and therefore there tends to be more support of cricket, more interest in, in cricket. Um, and also, you know, if you go back the generations, then it depends at what point you move to a country where football is, is a, you know, the favourite sport. Um, and I talked to some people in the British Asian community who said, well, they might be second or third generation in the UK, but if you went back to their parents' generation or their grandparents' generation as uh, football wasn't a strong sport in India, um, then they would actually have tended more to, you know, be encouraged mm. to be interested in cricket and watched cricket and gone to cricket matches and played cricket than football. More latterly, um, obviously, if you grow up in a community, you go to a school, and particularly if other people have an interest in something, there might be an element where you... Um, one of the other motivations, which is you, you link in with what your friends are doing and you want to fit socially. And so we are seeing increased support, particularly in some clubs, which is interesting. So, for example, Liverpool's got a strong uh, British Asian support. Um, and I think maybe what happens is then there becomes a, a sort of sense of, well, I see people like me and I feel part of a community and I go along and, and support. Um, so I think sometimes it's just about people feeling yeah, we're part of this, and um, this is a good thing to do. We're part of the community. While most fans don't behave in the same way as most traditional customers do, there is a contingent, you say, who who do act in the sort of the normal way that a customer does and will change. You talk about this concept of champ followers, which I suppose is a play on the word camp followers. Is that... Uh... Well, I mean, I think what happens is that... Um, with any brand, with any set of customers, you will get different degrees of loyalty and different types of loyalty. And we've known for a long time that there are, George Day put it, behavioural loyalty and attitudinal loyalty. Behavioural is that you, you buy something or you go somewhere or you, you behave in certain ways that show repeat purchase or repeat behaviour. But you aren't strongly emotionally attached. It's not really a psychological attachment. Attitudinal is that you are very emotionally and attitudinally linked to a particular brand. And I think in some cases, if you're not particularly attitudinally linked to a football club or brand, you quite enjoy football as a spectacle. You, you're quite happy to go to a match. You maybe go socially or you, you like a particular player, but you don't feel that sort of passionate attachment. Then um, you may firstly support a successful team. I mean, who wouldn't if they had a choice? As somebody who's supported a team that has not been successful <laughs> over the years, I can quite see why you would be <laughs> tempted to do that. Um, and also, we're seeing particularly that there are people who might be sort of Beckham fans rather than fans of a particular team because 
football brands are not just clubs, they could be tournaments, they could be football associations, they could be players. And so when Beckham goes from Manchester United to um, across to Real Madrid, then their allegiance switches. switches. And then when he goes to LA Galaxy, it switches again. And then to AC Milan, it switches again. So that they actually follow players rather than clubs. Yeah, I want to move on to what most people see as a brand, most obviously, which is like the logo, the design, the colour. And it's face it, uh, football clubs are no different from any other brand. They, they have a team logo, they have a coloured shirt, and they have a particular design. And it seems to change an awful lot simply to sell football shirts, perhaps. But um, in your book, you indicate that this has always been the case. In fact, you, your own Sunderland, you say, changed their shirt colour within three years of formation. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, well, I think in the amateur days, it's quite frequently teams sort of wore what was available and some of the switches are sort of from red to blue or things mm. and now we have a colour that we strongly associate so there were some quite dramatic shifts and I think we're seeing at the moment Manchester United the green and gold reappearing and that was the traditional Newton Heath colours of the club which are quite different to the, the strip now and the strip that we've come to associate with the club. Um, obviously clubs do have away colours and strips that do vary year on year mm. as you rightly say so they might have more than one colour but we tend to have a dominant colour so pretty much with any brand, we would have a logo, so the Nike swoosh or the McDonald's arches or whatever else that is a sort of symbol of the brand that we associate. Um, we'd also possibly have a colour. So we'd say, well, what, McDonald's arches? Golden arches. Uh, and a red background colour. And we'd be able to tell you those things. When I did research in China on football brands, uh, and you say, what do you associate with? And in this case, it was national teams. Um, colours came out quite strongly. But then for some teams, th those colours were less significant as part of what people associated. So they weren't saying England white or England red. There wasn't that strong a, a colour association. It's just one of those elements that are attached. But it is something that has changed over the years. Of course, the more we see on TV, the more we build awareness around a brand, it would now be difficult in those where it is established and linked in people's minds to go back and change that mm. association. So... The, the change in brands that we've seen in football teams in terms of logo, in terms of colour, we shouldn't worry about too much because they tend, as you say, to stick with a base colour. And the changes that there have been in recent years aren't because there's suddenly bigger brands or bigger businesses, but it's just always been with us. Brands have always evolved, colours always, always evolved. They've always evolved. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of the changes that we're talking about there are, are historic and are some considerable time ago. Um, and the more recent changes in some cases have been well, a recognition that, you know, a lot of the um, logos were actually crests, they were badges. Some of them were not easy to translate into digital media and, and other sort of formats that have come along that obviously we never anticipated at the point where they were developed. So they've been simplified a little bit. Or in some cases they have genuinely evolved. We mentioned Sunderland, which is where I come from. Um, in the 70s it had a ship on the logo, but of course there's no shipbuilding in Sunderland now. So over time, and particularly when they moved to a new stadium, they took the opportunity to, to evolve the logo towards a more modern perception of what the area is about. And uh, they put in a miner's wheel because the, the new stadium was built on the um, on the site of a, a former mine. But this natural evolution isn't always accepted, is it? Coventry changed their logo and removed certain elements of their logo and they had to, according to your book, go back again and go yeah, back to the old logo. Yeah, but that's not uncommon as well because, yeah. I mean, you know, remember um, Coca-Cola's new formula, Coca-Cola, that wasn't a, a sort of brand one, it was more of a product, but 
people, you know, there's retaliation against the taste having changed. And uh, names such as um, Kellogg's changing their um, Choco Krispies. <laughs> well, actually, we knew them as Cocoa Pops in the UK, but they decided that for simplify, to simplify it, they were going to go for one name. And again, there was a backlash. Mm. You can't remove a brand that I have an association with. So they actually went back and changed the decision. In this case, sometimes when the changes have been promoted, um, the clubs recognise or realise that there was a much stronger attachment to some elements of it, that those things symbolically mean things mm. to the fans because of a memorable victory or, you know, they've seen that for years or my dad supported the club and that's the way the logo looked. So it's really about gauging the strength of opinion. Some changes would not matter terribly much to fans, but actually, given how emotional the link is given how historic some of the attachments are uh, you have to be quite careful in making those changes so there are limits to any change and in the case of Coventry it was the, the castle from the elephant and castle and and the phoenix were the, the final straws for them uh, it was interesting that both those elements were like local elements which is curious for a global brand that football depends so much for logos that have so many very local very specific in this case uk town elements in them well, I think what you've got to say is that these were local brands. They grew up in areas and they grew up with local support and local players. And they have evolved over time because football has changed from being just a game hmm. into being a business. You know, we, we can't wind back the clock whether we want to accept that or not. And I know some people sort of say that's taken away from its sporting aims, but we now re pretty much have dual aims, sporting and commercial, in terms of buying the best players and attracting people into the game. And as those clubs have evolved over time, then the supporters become you know, broader. At one point it might be then people had moved away through work and whatever, so it was national support rather than local. And now it might be international support rather than even just national support. But the origins being local mean that some of the things that are associated with it are local. And there might be fans out there who don't even necessarily know the, the history or the origins of what those things are but still associate it with the brand. And are football brands stuck in that locality in a way that other brands aren't? You can move a car manufacturing company across Europe to somewhere where there's cheaper labour. It doesn't seem that easy to move a football stadium even 50 miles. Yes, there is a geographic element to football brands, which makes it, certainly in, in most countries, not all, because in the USA there have been instances of, of franchises of... Um, the names of clubs, the, the identity without the location, actually moving and, and changing because there's a better crowd or a better stadium or something. But in most countries, we would um, link it to a, a region, to an area, and moving away from that would actually be viewed as, as a negative thing. You find that even quite small suggestions, like you know, if Liverpool build a new stadium, mm. that they might actually build it outside the Liverpool city boundaries, have actually been... You know, greeted with dismay because it, that's not what's meant to happen. That's not where the club belongs. It's interesting. It's not just the uh, the fans or the customers who want the brand to stay within the city. They often find that new stadia are important to uh, city fathers, to the local economy, um, local councillors and politicians are wanting a club to build and invest in a locality. And indeed, many of them now are hoping to make money or economic benefit out of their local clubs playing a role in the, the new World Cup bid, for instance? Yes, I mean, I think it's the, the stadium, the, the physical location is interesting because um, and the American model, the US model for, for not just football but for all sports, 
Um, the stadium is important for generating revenue, so you can actually not just use it for sporting events, but multi-purpose. It might be gyms, it might be shopping mall, it could be a hotel, it could be lots of different things to use that asset because obviously it's quite a significant asset. It's quite visible. Yeah. Um, and actually, some of the modern purpose-built ones are multifunctional. You could have rock concerts there. You could do all kinds of things. And so the stadium itself is quite significant. We've seen stadia... Um, built for example in for olympic games in countries where actually after that event they aren't of any great use and they don't get filled and, and, and in greece i know that there were issues about how much those stadia were used and they can fall into disrepair so we now seem to be giving great um consideration to where a, a stadium should be located if because if, a lot of clubs are understandably saying that their old stadia may be a little old and rather than maintain it might be easier to move somewhere with better road links and to cope with a modern era, better train links, better yeah. access, rather than in the middle of some housing estate or where the stadium originally was. You've indicated football has become, essentially in the UK, at least a global brand, and football teams have become global brands, to the point now where they have global buyers wanting to seek after those brands and acquire them. Is that the ultimate end point? Is that, is that the ultimate badge of success that they're being bought by... Um, overseas concerns? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I know um, some people have... It depends how much they like their owners or not, to be honest, I think. In some cases, they... Um, those people are heralded as being fantastic. I mean, at Aston Villa, one of our local teams in the Midlands here and Warwick University, they um, are very much in favour of Randy Lerner because he's come in, he's invested, he's a philanthropist, he invests in other things round and about. He's actually restored a certain pub that meant a lot to the fans. He's done things that are seen as wholly positive without interfering in, in what they do. And in other cases, there have been sort of fans saying, no, no, these, these owners are not doing things that we feel fit with the nature of the brand and we've just seen Liverpool be put up for sale by its current owners and it's very likely that it'll be bought by another international investor because it's not a millionaire's again one of the club chairman put it to me now it's no longer any good to be a millionaire you've got to be a billionaire to invest in football um, and there aren't that many locally based billionaires sitting around in most countries who would be prepared to buy the clubs so it almost it's grown to a point where that is inevitable there's a whole new level of globalisation that football could yet reach out to. Thanks for talking to us. Football Brands by Sue Bridgewater, who is a social professor at Warwick Business School, published by Palgrave Macmillan. Thank you.